Hey, Mark. Joe, how are you? I have another question for you. <laughs> have you been worried about what, what I've been thinking about all week? Yes, I could think of nothing else all week long. I'm going to do an easy one. What's your favorite kind of cheese, if you have a favorite kind of cheese? Ooh, my favorite kind of cheese. I do like cheese. I eat a lot of cheddar cheese, which is weird because it's not my favorite kind of cheese. Oh. I think my uh, favorite kind of cheese is any kind of cheese that's edible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> whatever is there. Whatever is there. Yeah. Well, it would be between that and Venezuelan beaver cheese. Okay. What is Venezuelan beaver cheese? Monty Python. You know, the, the cheese sketch. I don't remember that from that sketch. He goes through the whole bit, you know, do you have this kind of cheese, that kind of cheese? And then finally he says, Venezuelan beaver cheese. <laughs> well, at least you like the one that's always available. Yes, yes. Now I feel like some cheese. We're going to have to take a little break while I go get some cheese. Uh, what is your favorite kind of cheese? I think the original series of Star Trek. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Good answer. Okay. So now what we're actually supposed to be talking about, bringing on a, uh, an artistic creative person and having them tell us about their favorite piece of art, or maybe not their necessarily the favorite piece of art, but a piece of art that inspires them. And today it's Arlene Marks. Hello. Hi there. And how are you today? I'm doing okay, all things considered. <laughs> so now before we get into what is your favorite piece of art, tell us who you are. Oh, sure. Okay, my full name is Arlene F. Marks. I, I use the my middle initial for writing. That helps people find me more easily when they're browsing. I was born hardwired for storytelling. I have been writing fiction since I was about six years old, which was many, many moons ago. Got my first taste of publishing in the high school yearbook. Really enjoyed that and decided it was a goal to strive for. Got sidetracked into teaching. Retired from teaching in 2012 to dive right into a full-time writing career. And in the 11 years since then, I have had published 16 or 17 books. I am currently working on number 21. Another person uh, putting us to shame, Mark. <laughs> I, I, this is your thing, man, not mine. It's not a contest. It's not a race. It's like, it's all good. And I admire, I admire that, Arlene, quite a bit. You, I, I aspire to be you because <laughs> we also share the middle initial thing. Mine, Mark A. Rayner, for the yes. same reason, because there's all kinds of Mark Rayners, especially that, that bastard in Australia who won't sell me the domain, markrayner.com. Oh, oh, dear. Have you tried? <laughs> I have asked him, yeah, but I don't know. He's probably not – not that he's going to hear this. <laughs> uh, and I noticed that he's uh, – you just call him a bastard, not a magnificent bastard, like you call the people that you're actually fond of. Yes. <laughs> if he sold me MarkRader.com, then he could become a magnificent bastard. <laughs> Arlene, I hope you're okay with the salty language of this Sorry, podcast. yes. Not a problem. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about your writing, if you don't mind, about what kind of books you publish. Okay. Well, the first books that I, uh, that I wrote upon retirement actually were to quantify everything that I had learned about teaching literacy. And so I created two literacy programs, one for grades four through eight and one for grades nine through 12. And they are actually in use in North America and possibly in other countries. I do not know. I've been receiving royalties for these books, so they are being sold. <laughs> 
But those were the first two things that I had to do. I felt that I had all this proprietary material on my computer at home that I had developed for my classrooms. And I just wanted to give back. And at first, I was just, you know, including it in newsletters and sending it out. And then I realized that I had the makings of a literacy program for high schools. Teaching literacy. What is it you teach specifically about literacy? That's communication skills, because my my main area of expertise is English. So I, I taught English language communication which was reading, writing, and representation, actually. I got into some representation. I became the literacy lead teacher at the school where I was teaching and set up uh, literacy programs. So you and Mark have a lot in common. You're both writers and you're both educators. I think the two go hand in hand. Most of the authors I know teach on the side at some level or other. And, And I actually do workshops as well. I belong to a writer's collective up here in Collingwood, which is where I live now. Ooh. And once or twice a year, I give a workshop to the uh, members of the collective on various writing topics. And you ski at, on the side, I'm guessing. No, actually, I, I avoid the, the ski slopes entirely. I am a klutz. I would spend half my time in the emergency room if I went on those slopes. So It can no. get a lot of writing done in those emergency rooms. <laughs> Especially these days. Yeah, large blocks of time. Yes, yeah. I know. By your third day, you could have the whole thing outlined. Especially if Kathy Bates is your uh, nurse. Exactly. <laughs> well, that sounds like a fascinating, rewarding, and excellent career. And now, like you said, you're you're on your second career, one of writing. And, and you've been doing that since 2012, was it? 2012, yes. And once I had finished the literacy programs, I went full-time into speculative fiction, which has always been my first love. I discovered it when I was 11 years old. The world is not a welcoming place for precocious children who happen to be bookworms. (laughs) And I discovered Robert Heinlein, his book Tunnel to the Stars, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. Heinlein, gateway drug, science fiction. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was a story about some teenagers who get stranded on an alien world and they have to set up their own civilization and they discovered that they are actually able to deal with setting up a civilization on their own. And then they're living quite independently and they're settling their disputes and all the rest of it. And then they get rescued and they get demoted back to being kids. And I I was feeling that way at the time. So I really related to that. Yeah. And uh, it, it put me onto Heinlein. And as you say, it's a gateway drug. From Heinlein, I went on to Asimov and Bradbury and Clark. And Clifford Simak was a favorite of mine. Um, Anne McCaffrey. Zena Henderson changed my, my life because she was an educator who wrote about children with such sensitivity. And her writing was so lyrical and so beautiful that it, it just, it, it stuck with me. I'm not familiar with Senna Henderson. Yeah, I'm like, who is, who is that? <laughs> uh, well, she created The People. There are four, four or five books that she wrote that I am aware of, and I have all of them. And uh, she wrote two novels about the people. Uh, I have two of her story collections. One is called The Anything Box. But now Zena Henderson is not what you came here to talk to us about today, and neither is it even fiction. No. It's it's a painting. 
And again, my first encounter with this painting was a very long time ago. It could have been introduced in a classroom that I was a student in. I just remember it being uh, something that has stuck with me over many, many years. Peter Bruegel was a Flemish painter in the first quarter or so of the 1500s. And like the artists of his time, he had patron. And the idea of a patron, because there was uh, photography hadn't been invented at that point, and so if you wanted a picture of your family, you hired an artist to come and paint it. If you were wealthy enough, you could supply an artist with living expenses. Nowadays, we would call that a retainer, but they actually enabled the artist to live and be at your beck and call so that if you, you wanted something to remember a special event, the birth of a baby, for example, or a visiting relative that you wanted a painting of, you would you know, put out a call to the artist who would drop everything and come and paint an actual portrait of your relative or the new baby being held by the proud parents or whatever it is you wanted them to paint. In their spare time, they could do other commissions. They, they could do other things. And what Peter Bruegel did was he went out into the countryside and he mingled with the peasants and he recorded in, in his paintings their way of life. And his tendency was to squeeze everything he had observed over the course of however long it was into a single canvas. Huh. And so we have this, this children's games, which was painted in 1560. And there are, no exaggeration, I, I looked it up, 230 different children playing 83 different games. Hmm. What really impresses me about his works is that all of these figures are the same size. There is no focal point. There is no place where he wants the eye to go. It's really up to the viewer to decide which detail they're going to look at. I visited the Louvre once when I visited France, and I've been to British Art Museum. I've been to the Ontario Art Gallery, and I've seen portraits that were painted by the masters, and I've sat there and I've studied them and thought, oh, that's nice. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, I walk away. With a Bruegel painting, it's hours, not minutes, because there's so much to see in one of his paintings. Everywhere you look, there's another story taking place. And that's how I present it to my students in, in workshops. There's, there are stories all over this canvas. It really illustrates something that I've tried to impress on my, on my writing students, which is there are no minor characters in life, or there are people who, who fill minor roles in other people's life stories, but that doesn't diminish their own magnitude or their own dimensionality. They still are the main characters of their own life story. That is true. Yeah. And, and, and the way to make them memorable for the reader is to, to uh, draw the curtain aside and give the reader a glimpse of that character's life story. Now, Mark, are you looking at this painting? Yeah, it's mad. It's a mad painting. It's I'm trying to decide if it's the opposite of an Impressionist painting or if it's a hyper-Impressionist painting. Because, you know, with Impressionism, they painted those paintings, like, literally within minutes to an hour. And this obviously took a very long time to paint. <laughs> but at the same time, it's got the same, 
it's got the same kind of like, here's the scene. Here's what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you could sort of get, you could take a glance at it and go, yeah, it's a lot of kids having a lot of fun. But then when you look at it, it's like, what is going on here? What are these games? So what are some of the fun <laughs> stories that you like out of this painting? Because there, there are so many. Oh, there's one where, where someone's being a, uh, having a practical joke played on them. <laughs> where, where, what quadrant of the painting is that? <laughs> we need grid lines or something. <laughs> we'll just take 30 minutes now and find that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what? Because we need to, I think we need to set the stage here for, for those who, you know, are driving in their car and listening to this and can't see the, the painting. There's a, a couple of buildings and then yeah. there, yeah, there's you know, hundreds of kids. At first glance, I thought it was a brawl. Could you describe it for us, Arlene? Okay. Um, there are a couple of, of large buildings in the four, in the, there's one in the foreground that looks to be a marketplace. And there's one in the background that looks to be some kind of an official building. And there's a street mm-hmm. along the right-hand side. And you look down the street and you can see there are other large, rather impressive-looking buildings lined up on that street. So you're, you're in a very large town. And it ends at a cathedral or something. It ends at a cathedral. Yes, in the distance. And he's, and he's using this newfangled thing called perspective. <laughs> yes. And on the left, there are a couple of trees. And if you look past the trees, you can see there's a little village on the horizon there. Mm-hmm. Now, in the right front, let's see, the bottom uh, right-hand corner, there are children playing in what looks to be a sandbox. Yep. Hmm. Uh, and they're building something in this sandbox. And then uh, beside it, two kids have taken a, a, a looks like a, a keg, one of these great big whiskey bats laid it on its side and they're they're climbing on it <laughs> as if it's a it's, as it's if bad. it's a teeter totter yeah and it's, next to them it looks like there's a bunch of kids putting another kid to death it looks like <laughs> yeah and i don't know what this kid is that looks like they're maybe wearing a nun's outfit backwards yeah and blowing to some kind of big balloon or Probably probably inflating a bladder so they can play ball or something. Probably, yeah. And hoops. And hoops. We we could literally spend the next half hour, 45 minutes describing all of the games that are taking place in this. It would take hours. I was really struck by by the little fence line. There's a fence line next to the the market. Uh, And it looks to me like they're playing, you know, the, the Flemish version of British Bulldog. Yeah. Yeah, there's some some kind of a game going on in there. Yeah. And not a um, single Nintendo or iPhone in the uh, in a lot of them. Nope. Nope. And they're making do with whatever they've got. Like like the, you know, the the whiskey vats and and the hoops which which came off of barrels. They're playing games on the ground with things that that look look like hockey pucks to me, but then I'm Canadian. What can I tell you? <laughs> I just reminded of my childhood when we played things like <laughs> Death Run 3000, where we'd ride our bicycles around in a circle and try to play like this game of polo while we did it yeah. at high speed. It's like, there's no safety standards here at all. Yeah, there's no, no helmets. And, and don't forget, these are games that were played by children in the 16th century. Yeah. So a lot of the games that are 
that are would have been familiar to them are no longer exist. This is all very, you know, historical. But maybe some of them do. Maybe some of them have lived on to this day. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure that there's a there's a hide and seek going on in there somewhere. And and uh, well, and like you said, there's a sandbox. You know, they're they're playing yeah. the sand. Yeah, there's British bulldog. That's that's not ring really around the rosy probably. Or I will say. Like it doesn't have a focal point, <laughs> which is from my perspective, I, what I teach is web design and, and graphic design is like, well, yeah, you're supposed to have a point that you're looking at, but that's the point of the painting, right? Is that you're supposed to look at everything. Well, what I got from this was when you're building a world, a fictional world for a, a series of novels, or even just for, for a single book, that world is full of people. Mm-hmm. Whether they appear on the pages of your book or not, in a series like my my Sick Transit Terra series, I mean, th- this is a whole universe, and it's full of people doing their own thing in various corners of the universe. And I'm just choosing to focus on a detail in each of the books where there is a story happening, and there is a main character or two, and there are secondary and other incidental characters, but they are still the main characters of their own particular stories, which I may get to in a different book later on, but at the moment, we're dealing with this particular story, and this painting has kind of guided my world building as well, because this this is the way I try to construct my worlds, with the sense that there's another world outside the, the pages of the book, and that the characters are aware of and that they pay service to. That really helps to put a perspective on things. So you apply this painting directly to your, your fiction work? Yes, I do. Is that what drew you to the painting originally? Well, I probably encountered it when I was in high school and getting a taste of publication. So, yeah, I would say this this and Zena Henderson and probably a whole bunch of other things as well. The Sick Transitary Universe is Dynasty meets Star Trek with a side helping of 24. So <laughs> I'm a child of the television age. So a lot of, of television episodic fiction has, has made it into my worldview. Now tell me again, what is the name of that series? Sick Transit Terra. Okay. And how many books are in this series? There are six in the initial story arc. But the next book in the series has been completed and it's under consideration at Brain Life Publishing. I've started a new series about an alien race called the Nashtorel. It's the immigrant experience. They've taken refuge on Earth from a genocide on their homeworld. And they are experiencing all the same kind of stuff as new immigrants experience when they come here intergenerational conflict because the younger generation has integrated into our society and the older generation doesn't appreciate that conflicts following them from the old country it's really an examination of the immigrant experience but in the context of space aliens <laughs> who are <laughs> who are here and experiencing all that but the first book in that series is Romeo and Juliet becomes Bonnie and Clyde with a dog. <laughs> is that one published yet? or It's coming out in May. Okay. And the title of that one? Uh, it's called The Earthborn. Born, okay. Tell us about uh, Brain Leg Publishing. Okay. Brain Leg is my second 
science fiction publisher. Edge Publishing in Calgary brought out the first six books of Sick Transit Terra. Brain Lag is my non-Sick Transit Terra publisher. I took a hiatus because after producing six books in four years, I just wanted to take a little vacation from all of, all of these people and explore other universes. Imaginary Friends is my story collection. And uh, the, the book that just released last month is a paranormal murder mystery. So I'm, I'm kind of exploring different aspects uh, of the speculative fiction spectrum. And are there different uh, middle initials for the different genres you write, Andrew? No, no. The same, the same name. name. Okay, yeah. Arlene F. Marks. <laughs> My very first published novel ever was a romantic suspense novel from Harlequin Intrigue. And it came out under a pseudonym. Because you were still teaching at the time, right? Partly that, but, partly, <laughs> but also partly because their boilerplate contract stipulates that they have legal control over whatever name you use. What? At least it did 30 years ago when that book was published. Wow. And I, I just decided I was not going to let anyone have legal control over my name for any length of time. And so I used a pseudonym. Yeah. But nowadays, there's no such thing in the contract. And if there is, I take it out. Now I'm more savvy about contracts and, and uh, more knowledgeable about the legalities of things. And, and so mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's, that's where I am right now. And so on two books a year is my quota that I've set myself. Okay. Yeah, that's impressive. I think that's quite doable and uh, also admirable. It is a good pace. Well, thank you. I, I started late. I, you know, I came in kind of late, and I just have a lot of time to make up and a lot of stories bouncing around inside my head that I, I needed to get yeah. out onto the page. So you're subscribing to Joe's theory of writing it's as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the Anthony Burgess mode. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I long time ago I realized, yeah, I'm not going to be an Anthony Burgess. Yep. <laughs> this takes me too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I was going to ask you about the painting. Do you have a favorite story in the painting? Not really, because there's a focal point and because it just kind of hit me. <laughs> and what impressed me most about this painting was that, you know, the, the, the sheer number of figures and the the variety of activities and so on. So I don't really have a favorite. I, I just enjoy looking at the whole painting in, in its entirety. Do you have a print of the painting in your home? No, I don't. I would love to. And I probably should be dropping hints about that around mm -hmm. this time of the year. Uh, Christmas <laughs> gift, anyone? <It> <laughs> Another thing we share, I think, Arlene, is the idea that every character does have a story. And I, it's just interesting to me how we come from that from different places. So I can see how this painting would do that for you. For me, it was from uh, studying theater. And I, I, I'm a real dilettante. And I, I kept changing my... Um, my major at uh, Queens when I was doing my undergrad, just to take the courses I wanted to. And at the end, it's like, all I had, all I could get a degree in was drama or English. If I only wanted to take English courses and I didn't want to do that. So I had to take a couple of acting classes hmm. and it's not my metier. It's not my thing. I don't like acting 
for me, it's, I, I really appreciate the art form. It's a very difficult job. But one of the things I got out of that class was that it doesn't matter how small your part is. If you want to be real, if you want to be believable, you have to have a story in your head. You have to need something in the scene. You have to have a goal. Even if it's just like, as Vonnegut says, just you want to drink a water. <laughs> and I love that because I think that makes art, I think that doesn't matter what you're talking about, fiction, media, any kind of media, really, movies. It makes the characters more believable when they've got some kind of backstory to them. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's very true. I was actually reading um, uh, the book of one of our future guests, actually, uh, John Cortelli, who wrote a, a book about uh, George Carlin. And uh, George Carlin was super interested in acting, and he subscribed to that entirely. And he would have relatively small parts in these movies, but he, the characters that he portrayed never failed to be fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that happens if, you, if you're writing and you just go, okay, well, I need this character to accomplish this thing in this scene. But if you don't give them a life, then it's going to feel that way to the reader that there isn't a life behind whatever it is they have to accomplish in that scene. So uh, I love, I love that. And I love this painting as a way to think about that. Now, have you guys noticed in this painting, it appears, and I wonder if it's just due to the age of the painting or if he originally painted it this way. Some of the characters are well drawn and fleshed out and painted and others don't seem to have the same kind of attention to them. Well, they all have creepy eyes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they all kind of have the same nose. They all kind of have creepy eyes, is what I would say. Yeah, and some of the faces, uh, maybe because it was there, you know, they were too small, and it was maybe too difficult to get that kind of detail in it too small is, a space. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't even know how large the original uh, canvas was. It's a very good question. Now, did you see it originally at the first time? In oh, I guess you probably saw a reprint of it, but did you see it in the Louvre? Uh, no. And, and I can say that with confidence because when I was writing a book at one point, I was very meticulous about my research details. And I wanted my character to be attending a gallery showing. I wanted to find out whether Bruegel's paintings had ever appeared in the Louvre. And it cost me a fortune in long-distance calls. And this was for my book thirty. 30 some odd years ago. So, you know, that there wasn't the same degree of availability of information online. So here I was, you know, making long distance calls to the French Ministry of Culture <laughs> to, to try to find out whether uh, 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 an exhibition of Bruegel's paintings had ever appeared in the Louvre. That, hmm. that was the question that I wanted to answer. And I never did get an answer. Oh. And finally, I made something up. And that was okay, because this is fiction. It doesn't have to be accurate as long as it's plausible. As long as it doesn't jar the reader out of the story, you can get away with it. Because the reader will suspend disbelief as long as you make things plausible and as realistic as possible. That does make sense. I'm just actually, you got me curious about how big this painting is. Oh, I've looked it up. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's four by five feet, roughly. Oh, that's big. That's a it's pretty large big painting. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, I don't think that explains the, the weird faces. 
I just had a theory that apparently before, well, even during the Victorian era, there was this idea that children were just little humans, little little adults. Hmm. Yes. And maybe that's why he's drawn them that way. That's just how they are. They're just yeah. like little adults. They're or maybe like little- that's what people's faces look like back then. <laughs> Yes, that's it, Joe. <laughs> you think you've nailed it. <laughs> We've evolved into different faces in the last 400 years. Prove it's me amazing. wrong. <laughs> Their body proportions are those of adults. They are, yeah. They don't, They they kind of aren't, like there's some of them you go, that doesn't look like a child. That's maybe, there's like an uncanny valley to this painting that kind of freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. But- that's part of the one of the reasons I, I I I'm glad that I downloaded the really large version because then I can zoom in and oh, yeah. see the. It's really fun. I, I I encourage all the listeners to do this and just like have spend some time with the painting because it really is kind of magical. Yeah, just not while you're driving. Just okay. yeah, don't <laughs> pull over to the side of the road. <laughs> we have to be responsible yeah. in this podcast. Well, you you asked me earlier about brain lag. Yes. I don't think I ever answered that. Well, that's because um, there's a lag to your response because of the, the whole brain lag thing. <laughs> that's one of those jokes that I will edit out of the – I do that a lot. I find like, okay. oh, that was a really stupid joke, Joe, and I just cut that one out, and I leave all Mark's stupid jokes in. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, brain lag is based out of Milton, Ontario, and the reason that uh, I have brain lag – as a publisher, is that I had uh, a very productive 2020. Uh, that that was the year of the lockdown, and there was nothing for anyone to do. And being an introvert with uh, a filing cabinet full of partial manuscripts and projects that I had started but not finished, I decided that would be a, a good use of my time to find projects that I now could finish and during that year, I completed four novels. Wow. Impressive. Now, I, I didn't start them from scratch. It's not like I wrote a novel in three months because I don't work that fast. But these were things that projects that I had started while I was still teaching and I could only write during the summer months mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I had these manuscripts and every last one of them takes place in Ontario. And... I thought, I really need a publisher in Ontario for these books. <laughs> so I noticed the name Brain Lag Publishing coming up on my Facebook feed. Announcements being made by my friends on Facebook about this book and that book coming out from Brain Lag. And, and I thought, I probably should look into this. And so I did. I went to their website. I was very pleased with what I saw. And, and this underscores the importance of having a really good professional-looking website if you're going to be a publisher. And I queried Catherine Fitzsimmons, who is the owner of Brain Lag, for my first book that I had completed, which is called Adventures in Godhood. And I I pointed out in the query letter, this book takes place in Toronto and, and in the GTA. And I just feel I need an Ontario publisher to do it justice. Yeah, I, I actually know Catherine Fitzsimmons. She does run a very respectable micro-publisher, Brain Lag. Yeah. She frequently attends conventions and uh, has lots of authors and supports them well and uh, is uh, an important part of the Canadian speculative fiction ecosystem. Yes, and, and her star is rising, as a matter of fact. She, she's an up-and-comer 
because they, she started small with just a couple of books a year. And now it's like 11 or 12 books a year, one a month coming out. So, Yeah, she's been at it quite a while. It's like one author, I wish I could remember his name. He's, you know, they called him an overnight success. And he said, well, if I'm an overnight success, it was one hell of a long, dark, cold night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it took me 40 years. (laughs) Yeah. Any final thoughts about uh, the painting that you've presented to us? I am in awe of anyone who could concentrate this much imagination and artistic ability on a single canvas. I really am. I wish I could draw. I can't. My, my expertise is with words, not with anything that requires dexterity of the fingers other than keyboarding. I just, it, it blows me away when I see something this involved and this complex on a canvas. It is impressive. And I'm the same. I can't draw at all. My wife and daughters are amazing artists, and I can draw stick figures. That's about it. Mark, what do you think? Final thoughts? I think it's fine that we can't draw. That's We can write, but we don't need to draw if we can write. But the, but the problem is, my daughters, they can both write and draw. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. They, they, they beat you then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. It's, they do. It's... It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. You know? It's all good. That's right. Yeah. Arlene, thank you very much for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a really great time. Thanks, Arlene. listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description, and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.